The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would turn with me in your New Testaments to Second Peter, we're going to continue our study that we started this morning, especially as it springs from the 18th verse of chapter 3 in Second Peter, where the Apostle writes, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I appreciate Russ leading singing this evening and the songs that he chose. Sometimes some things, if it's even just a verse in one of the songs, lines up perfectly with the lesson. The second verse of the song we just sang, he keeps me singing, talks about feasting on the riches of his grace. And I believe the verse that was under the title of that song was um, from uh, Colossians 3, how we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in songs, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And that's really what the lesson is about, feasting on the riches of his grace. But it's in the context of Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, where Peter gives the admonition to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We noted this morning that sadly sometimes Christians look at growing as Christians in a manner as if it is a grudging obligation. And that really is a sign of immaturity. And that's something we've all experienced at one point in our walk with God, where we looked at it not as something that is enjoyable and we look forward to, but we have to read our Bible. We have to study our Bible. We have to come to worship. But really this concept of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gives us a fresh perspective of our growth as Christians, wherein we come to a greater appreciation of what God is doing for us as we grow, that this is not just a checklist, but it is part of God's grace. It is a part of the blessings of God. And that's why, as we just sang about, as Russ led us, it keeps us singing. It keeps us joyous. It keeps us rejoicing in the Lord. And so, hopefully, this concept gives us that spirit of eagerness uh, to grow in Christ. But we noted the grace of God in our first half of this study as it pertains to some different perspectives of the Greek word charis, which is translated grace. We noted that it's God's disposition He has toward us, His attitude of favor. He wants to do good for us. He wants us to live spiritually, and therefore He He has that favorable disposition toward us. But we note that that favorable disposition only goes as far as the actions to which it leads, which led him to sending his son. There was the practical application of his favor toward us and the death of his son. But we also note that the very beginning and immediate effects of that practical application of his goodwill and the death death of his son is just that. It's only the beginning where that continues in the gospel of Christ as we are transformed and that by the teaching of God's grace, as we read in Titus 2 in verses 11 through 14, he purified us in his death to be his own special people zealous for good works. And so we looked at another form of that word cherish, where it indicates not the disposition of God's favor toward us and not even his gift of favor toward us, but the exceptional effect of his favor toward us. Namely, the immediate effects of our justification and reconciliation and release from sin and death and being made a child of God, but also the progressing effects as we grow as children of God. 
We are completely new when we come up out of the waters of baptism. But while that is true, in another sense, it's also very true that we've not changed much. And I want you to take that obviously with a grain of salt, not undermining the power of the gospel, but knowing that we as babes in Christ have a lifetime of change to undergo. And that's by the grace of God. As we are transformed, we are partaking in the grace of God. Or as Paul mentioned, by God's grace, I am what I am. And we need to view it in such. The only way that we will become what God calls us to be is by viewing the things He requires of us to become that as His favor and therefore rejoicing in the ability and privilege to partake in it. We noted that therefore that concept of grace is often intimately related with some other things that God blesses us with, like the power of God that we come into contact with in the gospel, and that power makes us what we ought to be. And it's by God's grace that He gives us that. But also knowledge, as we'll note even furthermore this evening, and as we see in Second Peter 3 and verse 18, that knowledge is a grace, if you will, of God that He bestows upon us, and we are blessed to be able by God's favor toward us to know Him and to come into a greater understanding of Him, and therefore, as it pertains to glory, the glory that we partake in. He has called us, and He called those who He predestined and justified those whom He called, and He glorifies those whom He justified. And while that ultimately will be consummated in the resurrection, it starts now, as we've indicated, which is a part of this effect produced by His favor. We saw it with Jesus. He grew in God's grace, and we are to grow in God's grace. We noted in Ephesians chapter 4 that God has given each one of us grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. That gift is bestowed in the gifts He left that pertain to those who are instructors of God's Word so that we can come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Well, I want to continue that study this evening and really focus more in Second Peter. We'll be other places, but more in Second Peter than we were in our first lesson to consider how we grow in grace. What does it mean to grow in grace? Obviously, we've touched on that a little bit, but there is some depth and importance in Second Peter, which tells us a lot about that process and why we should be so thankful to God for our being privileged to grow in His grace. Consider the process of our growth in grace, firstly noting that Peter's epistle is much to that end of expressing a need for growing in grace. The bookends of his epistle in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 2 and chapter 3 and verse 18 have to do with growing in grace. He worded it this way in verse 2 of chapter 1, Grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then in chapter 3, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we look throughout this epistle that we're studying, as Matt leads that study on Sunday mornings, we remember that this is a measure and means to be prepared for the judgment day. As he noted in chapter 3 and verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things... Be diligent to be found by Him in peace without spot and blameless. And also, it is a preventative measure to avoid apostasy, as He says in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being away, led away with the error of the wicked. And that's when He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so when we see in chapter 1 and verse 2, 
He wishes, if you will, grace and peace to be multiplied to the brethren. This is more than just a formulary greeting. I think sometimes, especially as we study epistles in Bible classes, we almost speed through the first few verses because he introduces himself as the writer. And then he has this formulary greeting of grace and peace be multiplied to you or grace and peace and mercy to you by God, the father and Jesus Christ, his son, something of that nature. But it's more than just a formulary greeting. This is not empty words that the Holy Spirit is revealing to us, but it has a lot packed into it. And I think we see the validation of that thought in chapter one of second Peter, especially in his greeting. He does not simply say grace and peace be multiplied to you, but it gives us the means whereby that occurs. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And we'll consider what that indicates. It especially has a lot to do with what he goes on to say in verse five in instructing them and encouraging them to grow in that grace that is to be multiplied to them in the knowledge of God. So it's quite obvious by Peter's epistle and by the rest of the New Testament that it's God's will and it's very important that we grow in grace. But Peter gives no small amount of words to the instruction of how we are to grow in God's grace. So consider the process of growth in God's grace. Consider that in light of the first uh, or the first five verses, verses two through four specifically of Second Peter chapter one. Peter writes by inspiration and says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This is how we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. First, it is by God's supply of that knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How are we to have that grace and peace multiplied to us? Or as he puts it in chapter 3 and verse 18, How are we to grow in that grace? Well, it's multiplied to us or we are increasing in it, as verse two suggests, in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, our Lord. But as if that wasn't enough, he elaborates on this. What does he mean by that? The knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. How does coming to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord, allow us to grow in God's grace and therefore as a secondary result, grow in peace between him and a peace of mind and the peace between each other. Well, he indicates what that knowledge includes. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In that knowledge, he gives us things that pertain to life and godliness. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 4, we see that that life he has referenced to is the new life in Christ Jesus. We're in a context of questioning whether we could continue in sin, The Apostle Paul speaks much to this subject, although in different words. He says that we should not because of our baptism. He says in verse 4, We were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. What's that new life look like? What's that new life include? How are we to conduct ourselves in that new life? The knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord God has given us informs us of that new life. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse 17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
And he adds to that old things have passed away and all things have become new. And so it's a different life. But how does it look? What does it function or how does it function? Chapter six of Galatians in verse 15, Paul mentions the same thing that in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avail anything but a new life. And godliness has much to do with that life. And the knowledge of Christ, we come to increase in the grace of God because it gives us all things, not some things, but everything. It's comprehensive. It's everything we need as it pertains to that new life, but also godliness, which is a part of that new life. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9, we really see the concept of godliness where the apostle Paul says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Godliness is that concept of Godward piety or reverence. In other words, we revere God and we want to do what is pleasing to him. We live our lives with God on our mind. We are godly, not that we are godlike. That's also a facet of Christianity, which is really what we're discussing here in Second Peter 1, but that we are mindful of God and we make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him. And godliness is ultimately achieved in the gospel, as Paul mentions in First Timothy chapter 4. You might remember in chapter 3, he indicated that he writes that they might know how they ought to conduct themselves in the house of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And in verse 15, he says, great is the mystery of godliness. The mystery of the gospel is that which pertains directly to a godly life. And as he warns of apostasy, he encourages Timothy to act in a way a young evangelist should act. He says this in verse 6 of 1 Timothy 4. If you instruct the brethren in these things, the warnings about apostasy and guarding against those things with truth, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables. Why? And exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having a promise of the life that now is and that which is to come. We see in context the way he would avoid those profane and old wives' fables and then exercise himself toward godliness is the same as the context of verse 6 as he's nourished in the good words of faith and of that doctrine, that good doctrine which he had carefully followed. If we are mindful of God and live and make it our aim to be well-pleasing to him, then we are studying that faith, that system of faith. And so we grow in the grace of God. It is increased or multiplied to us in the knowledge of Christ because in that knowledge, he gives us all things that pertain to that new life in Christ, which is much to do with his grace and godliness, which is how we please God. And as we noted this morning, that knowledge is found in his word. Notice taking out the reason or the effect coming from the divine power it says in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, His divine power has given us these things through the knowledge of Him. That divine power that gives us the knowledge of Him, which in turn gives us the necessary information of that life and godliness, is the gospel of Christ. As Paul puts it in Romans 1 and verse 16, it is the power of God to salvation. But Peter still elaborates further on God's supply that we might grow in His grace. Because that very one that brings us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him accomplishes such because of who he was and how he called us. It says there in verse three in the second part, 
through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. When he called us by the gospel, that is, he invited us to participate in the things of the gospel. It was a call, certainly. But another way of looking at that call is he gave us incentive and he attracted us to the gospel. Or as Jesus put it in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. We were attracted to and therefore answered this call of the gospel because of the means by which he called us, by his own, as the New American Standard Bible rightly puts it, by his own glory and virtue. What does that mean? He called us by his own glory and virtue. Why would that attract us to the gospel call? Because it's his own glory and virtue, which John writes about in John chapter 1 with such awe and wonder. John 1 and verse 14, he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, that glory being full of grace and truth. We see Jesus, who is the Son of God, and therefore we behold deity. We behold God, and and He's calling us into fellowship with Him. Why wouldn't we answer that call? Anybody who has the proper perspective of life will be attracted to that message, that message of the one who has the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, favor, and full of truth in a world that is full of unknowns and confusion. He gives us truth. But notice glory and virtue, which pertains to the manifestation of that glory in his life. Virtue is the Greek word arte, and it is, in a sense, moral excellence. Arton Gingrich gives this definition of arte. He says, It is uncommon character worthy of praise, excellence of character, exceptional civic virtue. Moral excellence is a good way of thinking of it. Who was more morally excellent, without blame, spotless than the Son of God? He calls us by glory and virtue. We see in Hebrews 4 and verse 15 that he is tempted in all points as we are, yet he was without sin. That is exceptional moral excellence. Or as we see in Colossians 2 and verse 9, who he was in the flesh, as we read in John 1:14, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He calls us in the gospel by his own glory and virtue. So in the gospel, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him because of who he is. One who called us by his own glory and virtue, the glory as of the only begotten of the father and virtue that is so great and excellent. He was without sin as he was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. I want us to notice how that progresses in second Peter chapter one, as God is seeking to increase in us his grace by the knowledge of him. He continues in verse four by which, the antecedent of which, is the glory and virtue. He called us by His own glory and virtue, and by that glory and virtue, He has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. It is a valid question to ask, what do those great and precious promises have to do with? He doesn't specifically mention what those promises are, but it stands to reason if we see what those promises lead to, then we can know the content of those promises. He says in the second part of verse 4, as he's given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these, that is these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature. And so 
the call to glory and of glory and virtue is something which gave us promises to partake in the divine nature. And really, it wasn't simply a calling by his own glory and virtue. It was a calling to his own glory and virtue. That is for us to come to and participate in his glory and virtue. Or as he said in verse four, partake in the divine nature. That's who Jesus was, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. The ESV renders it as such. He called us by, he called us to his own glory and virtue. And that's what the call of the gospel is too. This is what Jesus talked to the woman at the well about in John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman at Jacob's well, he asked to give for her to give him a drink. And they went on in the progression of those thoughts. And we remember he said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And likewise, as it pertains to him being the bread in John 6, he says similarly, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Contrary to those who ate the man in the wilderness and are dead. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And we know that that eternal life, which we receive from that living water and from that bread of life is fellowship with the father. He says that in John chapter 17, this is eternal life that they may know you and the one whom you have sent. We see the call of the gospel leads to that participation in the glory and virtue of Christ or in the divine nature as Jesus, as he nears his departure from the disciples, tells them in John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In what sense, Jesus? He says, in my father's house were many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. And I and where I go, the way you where I go, you know, and the way, you know, Thomas said, where are you going and how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me or no one participates in the grace of God except by the knowledge of him as he is the way, the truth and the life. Notice as he talks about those mansions are prepared that where he is, we may be also is found in the 17th chapter in his prayer to the father, which includes a prayer on our behalf, people living 2000 plus years in the future. He says in verse 22 of John 17, that the glory which you speaking to God gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. We noted this morning that that process of glorification starts now as our outward man is perishing, but our inward man is being renewed day by day. He has given them this glory. That's us. He's given us this glory. And notice what he says in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And so these promises are given by the call to his glory and virtue, whereby we can participate in his glory and virtue or the divine nature, partake in that same glory and be with him where he is in that glory. That word partakers in verse four, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. It does not indicate that we become God. It indicates that even though we are still as he created us, we participate in the things of God or we share in his nature. 
We see that in the Greek. The Greek word is koinonas, and it means to share or participate. It means fellowship, as koinonia is translated into fellowship oftentimes in the New Testament. Through these promises that pertain to coming to Him, coming to His glory and virtue, we become a partaker in the divine nature. Jesus put it this way in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And here's the effect. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. As we take of God's word, we dwell in fellowship with them. We partake of the divine nature. First John 2 and verses 2 and 3, as we indicated this morning, we are the children of God. Hasn't been revealed what we shall be, but we shall be like him. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Or as we read in First Peter chapter 1 and verse 15 and 16, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because as... Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. And there are many more scriptures that pertain to our participation in or fellowship with the divine nature. And it is through these promises that come from the call to his own glory and virtue. And promises are fulfilled always by God if we submit to his conditions. We see that as an example with Abraham in Hebrews 6 and verse 13, that God made a promise to Abraham, and after he had patiently endured, verse 15, he obtained the promise. And likewise, God promises us by the call of the gospel to Jesus' glory and virtue, where is revealed all things pertaining to that life and godliness, that we will be able to partake in the divine nature, and that's the increase and the grace of God and we will partake in the divine nature now and ultimately in eternity if we meet the conditions of God's promises. Which leads us to our second point. The supply of God to increase in His grace is knowledge. And the appropriation of the increase of grace by us is also in knowledge. In verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I think it's important to note, furthermore, before we get to that specific application, what this starts with, as we see in verse 4. You partake of the divine nature through the knowledge of Christ, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We spoke about this a little bit this morning. Some think that we can increase in the grace of God by continuing in our sin. Really, their idea of grace is all about being able to sin without consequence. And they completely miss and misrepresent the entire gospel message. Because the gospel of Christ in bestowing grace on us is to the end of our transformation, separate from sin and closer to God and partaking of the divine nature. Not continuing in sin without the consequences. I've said it before multiple times in Bible classes and in sermons that we need to view sin as the enemy, not simply death as the enemy. Certainly death, spiritual death and physical death is the enemy and physical death is the last enemy to be destroyed. First Corinthians 15. But the only reason there is death is because of sin. Sin is the ultimate enemy. We don't want to continue in sin and avoid the consequences. We want to avoid sin wholeheartedly. This is why Paul said in Romans 6, 1, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not, or God forbid. And that came from the context of the end of chapter 5. Notice what he said there in chapter 5 and verse 20. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. But notice in verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, 
even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace doesn't reign through our continuation in sin. Grace reigns through the system of righteousness, the righteousness of God, which is the gospel, as we see in Romans 1 and verses 16 and 17. In other words, as we adhere to the gospel, we abound or increase in the grace of God and His grace in us as we're further separate from the life we once lived before to the life we now live to God. And that's exactly what chapter 6 of Romans talks about. Notice in chapter 1 of Second Peter in verse 8 and 9, after talking about this growth in grace, he says, If these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins, which completely flies in the face of the, the denominational concept of grace, this Calvinistic concept of grace that we know that we've been given God's grace so we don't have to worry about how we live. Peter says by inspiration of the Spirit that if you're not progressing and you are regressing or you're just staying still or you completely turn back to the old life, you are not in the grace of God, much less increasing in the grace of God. And in fact, you forgot what the grace of God did for you at the very beginning of your walk in Christ. You were cleansed from your sins and you were cleansed from your sins as we emphasize this morning and as this lesson emphasizes that we may increase in that grace which cleansed us from that sin. But we know that God's supply is in knowledge and our appropriation of that is in knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And much like other things, knowledge has two sides of the coin. There is the bestower of that knowledge. We don't know, so we sit at the feet of the teacher and he bestows that knowledge. But then we don't come to that knowledge unless we apply that diligence, unless we come to learn and we grow in that knowledge ourselves. And so we appropriate the increase of God's grace through our increase of the knowledge of him, of which gives us all things that pertain to life and godliness and who called us by his own or to his own glory and virtue. We see knowledge a few times here in chapter 1 and then knowledge there in chapter 3 and verse 18. But it's interesting to note and I think important to note that these two Greek words are different. In 2 Peter 3.18, the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. And in 2 Peter 1 in verses 2 and 3 and also we see in verse 8, it is epinosis. Trench gives us the description of the Greek word epinosis as it is in comparison to gnosis. He says of epinosis, as compared with gnosis, it will be sufficient to say that epi, that prefixed, must be regarded as intensive, giving to the compound word a greater strength than the simple possessed. And so instead of just knowing the facts, there is a greater and more intensive association with the facts. Vine gives this description expressing a fuller or full knowledge, a greater participation by the knower in the object known, thus more powerfully influencing him. In other words, it is a fuller knowledge through participation. It's not just knowing the facts, but participating in the facts or becoming the facts. The facts being the knowledge of Jesus our Lord. We become like him. That's exactly what the gospel calls us to 
But it's interesting that in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, he uses gnosis while he talked about the saving knowledge as epinosis throughout the epistle, especially chapter 1. But I think there's a divine definition or description of what epinosis is in 2 Peter 3.18. Because he says we're to grow not just in knowledge, gnosis, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as we've discussed our increase in God's grace, we know that it means participating in the blessings of God in the gospel in the transformative process to be like Christ. And therefore, it's not just knowing about Christ and who He is, but it's participating in Christ and who He is. Progressing to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ to a perfect man, or as in Ephesians 4 and verse 15, growing up into Him who is the head Christ. It's interesting what Jesus said in John 13 as he gave the example of washing the disciples' feet and that representing a service to one another in the kingdom. He said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That's epinosis. You know those things and you participate in them and thus come into a greater appreciation and under a greater influence of that knowledge. And in Second Peter chapter 1, we see that increase in the knowledge, epinosis, and therefore the increase in the grace of God in verses 5 through 7. Notice he says in verse 5, but also for this very reason. Now that points back to what we just studied in verses 2 through 4. For what very reason? For the reason that grace of God is increased to us in the knowledge of Him, that we participate in His glory and virtue, that we know all things pertain to life and godliness, so that we can participate or be partakers of and sharers in, have fellowship with the divine nature. That's what God blesses us with, and we are to increase in that, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so as God supplies those things for this very reason, He's going to tell us to access them and apply them to your life as Christians. And this is what He does. Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And I want us to notice verse 8. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in what? The knowledge or epinosis of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is the grace increased to us in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Well, how do you increase in that knowledge? And therefore, God's grace is increased in you and you are increased in God's grace by adding to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, and brotherly kindness and love. We'll note in next studies, as I indicated this morning, we're going to study through this concept of growing in grace and that with these virtues that are enumerated in these two verses, three verses, but it's, willing, it's, it's, it's good to note here even that this is an ascending list. And so in applying these virtues and in growing in these virtues, we increase in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and therefore we grow in grace, and grace is increased in us. Well, it's an ascending list. Each one of these logically progresses. And I want us to notice the last virtue he mentioned. You add to your brotherly kindness love. That's the Greek word agape. It is the word used in 1 John 4, 8, when John says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We partake in the divine nature. God 
and He is love. And we see that progression, and we see that fulfillment of increasing in God's grace. Matthew chapter 5 indicates that we're not just to love those who love us, but we're to even love our enemies. And He gives the reason why in verse 48, that we should be perfect or complete as our Father in heaven is perfect. We become like God when we add love. Or as we see in Second Peter 1 and verse 4, we partake in the divine nature. We started this study off this morning and even this evening with understanding what this brings to us as Christians. It brings to us, at least in my estimation, a newfound and deeper and more meaningful understanding of God's call to growth. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ should not be looked at as a grudging obligation. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 14, after saying that they are to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in them both to will and to do for His good pleasure, He says these words, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. It's a sign of immaturity to view the call to grow in Christ, to, to view coming to worship and to view studying God's word, to view reading God's word, to view being with Christians and participating in spiritual fellowship as a grudging obligation. It is a sign of spiritual immaturity to not look forward to these matters. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, John says this, This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. This is a part of growth. A lot of times we talk about why we want to serve God, and one of those very sound reasons that God gives us is for the fear of going to hell. And we should always have that fear. But you know, an individual who first obeys the gospel may have simply obeyed the gospel because this is what Jesus said to do to avoid hell. But if they are progressing in the gospel, they are going to come to the knowledge of God and what He's done for them. And it's going to transform into doing or from doing what God says out of fear of going to hell to doing what God says because you love Him. And you're wanting to reciprocate that love. Well, it's much the same here. We may start off by reading our Bible daily and trying to study for Bible class or always coming to worship faithfully, not necessarily because that's what we look forward to all week and that's what we live for. That's who we are. That's what we're all about. But it's just kind of a checklist or maybe it's just how we're raised. We've always done it all our lives. We've always come to church. That's just what we do. That's a sign of immaturity, though, if that persists, because what it should transform into is Thanks be to God that I am able to do this. This is a part of God's grace that I'm given in Christ Jesus. The unmerited favor is not that Jesus' blood simply washes away my sins, but it sets me up for a transformed life in Him as I follow His Word. And that's what all of this is about, and that to God's glory. And so it gives us this refreshing view that we're not simply growing in knowledge as some intellectual exercise. We're growing in God's grace, and we're blessed to receive His grace. In chapter 1 of Second Peter, in verse 10, he shows us part of those blessings. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. Notice that connection with verse 5, giving all diligence out of your faith. Be even more diligent to make your call and election sure 
by doing these things. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He describes that new world to come, that kingdom that we gain entrance into in chapter 3, when he says all of these physical elements be destroyed, but we, verse 13 of chapter 3, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. We count it a blessing and a privilege and understand it as increasing in the grace of God in addition to what has been done for us in our initial salvation because this is how God is going to bring us home. Why wouldn't we look at it with favor? In our first lesson, we discussed charis, that Greek word translated into grace from its various perspectives. And we noted it's God's disposition toward us, and it's the manifestation of that disposition in an action. And then it's the effect that that action of God's grace has on us. Well, that Greek word charis is translated in another sense. It is, as Arton Gingrich defines it in his fifth entry, the response to generosity or beneficence, thanks, gratitude, or God's grace. And so we respond to it knowing what it is, knowing how we're blessed by it, in a spirit of thanksgiving. Are you thankful to be here hearing God's word? Are you thankful to sing songs of praise to him? Are you thankful to participate in the things of God? Or do we just long to get to lunch on a Sunday morning? Or do we just long to get home on a Sunday night? Or do we just long to to get Wednesday night over with? Or, or do we just speed read through this reading of our scripture or speed read through this, our study? We just fill in the blanks because they're filling the blank questions in our Bible study, but we don't really study our Bible lesson. Or do we do this with fervency of spirit, thanking God that we even have the opportunity and the privilege? In Colossians 3 and verse 17, Paul says, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In Hebrews 10 or 12 and verse 28, that word cherish is actually used where the Hebrew writer says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace or thanksgiving, the Greek word cherish, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Paul, according to his own call in apostleship, said in verse 12 of chapter 1 in 1 Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because He counted me faithful, putting me into His ministry. And it's interesting that it's used in the context of our contribution when Paul talks about the churches of Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. We noted in verse 7, the encouragement of the Corinthians to also abound in this grace as the Macedonians did. And even as we studied this morning in Bible class, we noted in chapter 9 the effects of that participation in God's grace. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. It causes thanksgiving to abound toward God. And Paul says, thanks or cherish be to God for this indescribable gift. Thus our call in the gospel to diligent discipleship and the service of God is not answered as a grudging obligation, but as a blessed favor bestowed by God that we get to participate in. We need to see the importance of spiritual growth in Christ. We also need to see the value of such. It's not merely a debt we owe. I would affirm that it's a debt we owe. He bought us and we are therefore to glorify God in our body and our spirit, which are God's. First Corinthians 6 tells us that. 
by inspiration of the Spirit. It is certainly a debt we owe, but that's not all we should view it as. That's only part of the equation. That's only one side of the coin. Because while we know it's a debt we owe to God because of the great price He paid for our sins, we also know that it's a continuation of that gift, of that grace. And therefore we do it out of thanksgiving. It's a privilege that we are given. Lord willing, in following studies, we're going to study each one of those virtues because as Peter says, that's what's necessary to add to our faith in order to participate in the divine nature and therefore increase in grace. I think it's of utmost importance that we know what those matters consider. Consider this though, if you have not obeyed the gospel, you have not yet begun your walk. You are not just not increasing in God's grace, but you are not in any way in contact with God's grace. But as we saw from Romans 5, we gain access into that grace by faith, and that's obedient faith to the gospel, which calls us to be baptized into Christ. And if we can assist you with that this evening, we invite you to come forward. And if there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing the song that was selected.